and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. The FDA and Pharma news were moving quickly this week despite the massive snowstorm that moved across the U.S., and of course our thoughts are with those who are still without power. Our first story this week is a drug promotion warning letter. Now, normally these don't move the needle much, but in this case, not only was the product an opioid, but it was, but it warranted mention by the acting FDA commissioner, Jana Woodcock, on social media. Sarah, you took a look at this one for us. Yeah, so um, it's a, you know, I'm not sure the letter um, particularly stands out and, um, you know, it's actually very similar to a letter that got, that was sent last year for a for a diabetes medicine, where essentially the the main problem was the um, this Desuvia letter had this um, very um, catchy tongue and done um, message around how efficiently um, it's delivered, and FDA basically says to them, you know actually the delivery of this medicine is quite complicated. You have a, a REMS in place to ensure um, proper delivery because this is a very potent opioid and it's a tab- tablet that goes kind of under someone's tongue. And they're in human factor studies in the review, there was concern that sometimes the tablets weren't being delivered properly, potentially even like winding up on the floor. And so that could lead to, you know, kind of, um, potential safety issues with under overdosing and very, you know, strong opioid or potentially even diversion issues. Um, But I think the reason why this letter is kind of getting so much attention, as you noted, is, you know, the FDA put out a statement about the letter, which is seems kind of rare with warning letters. Um, FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock, was on Twitter highlighting it. So was the acting CEDAR director, Patricia um, Zoni. Um, And recently Woodcock has been sort of um, taken to task for, um, you know, the FDA's role that some people see in kind of fueling the opioid epidemic or maybe not, you know, as carefully regulating these medicines as they should be. As she's and people are saying this is a reason why she should not um, become the permanent FDA commissioner. Um, so it's just interesting that we don't have any reason to necessarily think, you know, FDA deliberately sort of timed this to push back on Woodcock's critics. But um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if anybody sees this as kind of a look. You know, FDA is on this; they're um, making sure that when opioids are out there, you know, they're committing to kind of the safety side of things and carefully monitoring these companies now. Yeah, it's a very, uh, there seem to be sort of, kind of multiple uh, threads of uh, FDA policy that sort of, kind of encompass in this one, uh, um, this one letter, uh, you know, I guess it remains to be seen whether or not the uh, agency will sort of, kind of, sort of tout uh, um, FDA letters, uh, um, uh, uh, on advertising issues uh, uh, like this, uh, um, to the same degree going forward, you know there are a lot fewer letters sent these uh, um, these days. Uh, you know, sort of kind of uh, you know, ten years ago there were uh, um, you know something like uh, um, over ten uh, 
warning letters, uh, looking at about 13 warning letters, and then, uh, you know, 38 untitled letters. And then uh, um, last year there were uh, four uh, warning letters and uh, uh, two untitled letters. So it's a lot easier to sort of kind of get a lot uh, um, more of a, uh, um, I guess, promotional push about these uh, promotional letters uh, um, if you're doing fewer of them in terms of sort of kind of, uh, you know, FDA trying to get people's attention uh, um, about the matter. And that could sort of be a... Uh, an effort to show that sort of kind of you know FDA is uh, you know enforcing its uh, um, you know promotional uh, um, requirements in general, not just about sort of kind of uh, opioids with sort of kind of this uh, political uh, overlay, but it's a uh, um, you know a fascinating look at sort of kind of at the uh, um, second month of the uh, um, the new year, whether this is sort of a uh, um, a reflection of uh, um, what uh, Dr. Woodcock is doing, uh, um, you know, because. Uh, um, uh, she feels strongly about uh, enforcement, or she feels strongly about sort of kind of the uh, um, FDA uh, um, uh, sort of you know took the right approach in terms of opioid uh, policy, or it's uh, you know maybe sort of unrelated to uh, um, those issues and just sort of kind of just a, a new uh, um, you know uh, energetic uh, FDA Twitter presence in general. So there's uh, um, a lot to chew on there. Yeah, the other th the other thing uh, that uh, you know, in thinking about this, that uh, you know, this actually could could end up emboldening some of the some of the critics because you know, I mean, she was the the opioid groups that uh, you know that came out and um, uh, sent sent letters and so forth saying that um, Dr. Woodcock shouldn't be the commissioner were criticizing her over the decision to approve drugs like Desuvia and opioids like Desuvia, so. They could look at this and try and spin it in a way like, well, if you hadn't approved this, we wouldn't have this problem, you know, kind of kind of thing. But, you know, I, yeah, wh whether that'll happen or whether this will come up again or not, you know, I don't know. I, as I remember, Desuvia was intended to be a really kind of uh, highly specialized type of opioid formulation that wasn't intended to be used, you know, uh, outside of a, I believe, a hospital setting or something along those lines. And, um, just the, the fact that they were, you know, that there was promotion of this that was over the top was just in, in general was surprised was surprising to me just because of the fact that it wasn't supposed to be used all that widely. Right. Well, I asked the company um, about, you know, who this was, this promotion was going to. And my uh, they did not really answer that question. My assumption is this was promotion for doctors and medical, you know, medical professionals. This wasn't, um, and there's nothing in FDA's letter or anything in it. I believe there really is no direct-to-consumer promotion of opioids, typically, um, at this point. But, um, so, I, I, you know, it wasn't like they were sort of targeting this to the public, it doesn't seem like. But I think, um, and the interesting thing, Desuvia had a sort of a complicated regulatory review, um, I, th I think Scott Gottlieb was sort of working closely with um, dealing with like the U.S. military because they really wanted the, this drug because, um, you know, if you're out in the field and you can't give somebody, you know, an intravenous pain medication and you need to do some kind of emergency procedure, this is something that they really push for. And it is right. It's not meant to kind of have this widespread use, but it's, um, you know, complicated kind of complicated, as you know, because once um, FDA clears medicines like this, even if it's sort of developed for a kind of niche population with a particular need for it, that use doesn't always um, stay within that, you know, 
um, population and, you know, obviously sometimes, as we know, company promotion um, can sometimes try and broaden the use in ways maybe FDA didn't um, want when they granted approval of it. Well, yeah, this is definitely something that we'll be, you know, we'll be watching to see, uh, you know, number one, if the, you know, if what happens, you know, if the, once the, the FDA commissioner is, um, nominee is made and see if this comes up and how they, you know, how it all gets, uh, gets handled. Um, next up, we look at the coronavirus and the workload it could bring to Dr. Woodcock's old stomping grounds at Cedar. Acting CEDAR Director Patrizia Cavazzoni has said that many clinical trials for coronavirus therapeutics are expected to read out either or were expected to read out either last fall or this winter, and that a bolus of new coronavirus therapeutic work was expected. The agency already has issued emergency youth authorizations for a few treatments, as well as approved another. The data suggests more EUAs or approvals may be on the way. The number of late-stage clinical trials continues to increase compared to early-stage trials. And new drug and biologic INDs also spiked in the third and fourth quarters of fiscal year 2020, suggesting that more products may be advancing in development. All this is coming as the agency is dealing with a substantial amount of non-COVID review work. More than 60 novel drugs have pending review goals in 2021 already. So far, the agency has said it has largely kept up with existing user fee goals and even, even with the COVID work piled on top of it. So... Do you all think we're going to start to see some slipping? We, I know we keep asking this question. I know I've asked this question like probably five or six times. Like, when are we going to see a slip? When are we going to see a slip? You know, and at some point, you know, a slip has to come, right? I mean, they can't, they can't do this forever. They, uh, they do seem to be able to keep uh, pulling a uh, rabbit out of their, uh, um, out of their hat. Or obviously, sort of uh, have been uh, instances that we can all uh, uh, point to of. Uh, uh, you know, product, uh, you know, reviews and uh, likely approvals that have been uh, delayed because of uh, um, the coronavirus, mostly related to inspections. Although, uh, you know, hopefully as, uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, that's where kind of, you know, crunch continues, that's where there will be sort of an increase in inspections as FDA is, uh, is pledging. So they may have sort of kind of, uh, you know, avoided that, uh, um, you know, that, uh, um, you know, that uh, chokehold, uh, um, uh, there, but uh, um, as you pointed out, Derek, there are this for kind of that uh, um, that number of uh, um, you know uh, trials that FDA is reviewing is uh, is um, continuing to go up. Although even that has uh, um, tapered off a bit, it didn't uh, um, you know had the uh, the hockey stick uh, continued like it had in March and uh, um, April uh, of last year. They might have been in uh, you know much more uh, trouble than they were uh, um, this uh, um, this year. But it is. Uh, um, it, is, it, it does mean that there's going to be a, uh, um, a steady march of uh, um, applications for them to review. Uh, um, you know, they're probably not going to be doing it 24-7 uh, like they were uh, um, earlier. And we've written about sort of how they've, you know, they've wound it down their 24-hour uh, um, uh, hotline that they used to have and uh, all those kinds of things. So they've sort of taken steps, I think, to kind of, sort of, kind of be, more, uh, um, be more rational in their, uh, their resource use. But uh, um, whether that sort of leads to... Uh, some delays down the road. Uh, um, it's hard to say, but they, I think they've sort of kind of uh, um, been honestly sort of brilliant in terms of, terms of what they've been able to do and uh, uh, getting sort of things started, but then sort of kind of uh, being able to allow themselves to uh, um, take a break as uh, um, as needed. 
It's interesting, Derek, I was sort of trying to think about your story in conjunction with um, another story we had that you flagged, which is um, Cole um, Wordle's look at, you know, um, whether the the lack of sort of COVID therapeutics is going to be sort of a political um, problem for the FDA. So it's interesting that now we may be at a point where there may be more COVID therapeutics and that could... Um, hurt the agency because it does sort of feel like given that the sort of intense focus and success in vaccines that we haven't had you know we there are a few products available to treat the disease but none of them are sort of the um i think the the types of you know home runs the vaccines have been and there's been challenges in terms of supply or availability and um you know some of the drugs are really only good or for sort of later stages of disease, not necessarily preventing disease worsening. Um, so I don't know, I guess to me, that's like an interesting dynamic is on the one hand, they they might be sort of overwhelmed by all this work. And on the other hand, people are still saying, are still pointing out, we really don't have a great um, products in this space. So I was just sort of kind of thinking about like, what if we did have a lot of, um, you know, really um, good therapeutic options at this point where FDA might be. Well, and, and they've run into issues where they, you know, the monoclonal antibodies do work if they're given early enough, but then they they have to remind people that they're still reminding people, hey, use these products. If it, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to wait. They're supposed to keep people out of the hospital. You're not supposed to, you know, don't wait until, you know, people are presenting with full-blown, uh, you know, symptoms to, you know, to to think about this, and they're like advocating patients to ask their doctors for it if they think they're infected. So it's, yeah, it's a it, it's it's an interesting issue that's that's come up with therapeutics. It, I do feel a little bit this kind of that there is some uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, unjustified complaining about. Uh, um, the lack of therapeutics. I mean, sort of, you know, we've got this uh, these vaccines that obviously sort of kind of not everybody can get. Uh, um, um, but, uh, you know, it's been, uh, um, you know, uh, less than a year really since, uh, um, you know, the world woke up to the, uh, the risks of coronavirus and now they're, uh, um, they're maybe, uh, you know, inoculated against it within, uh, another year. And, uh, you know, if, uh, um, you know, there were a highly effective, uh, you know, therapy developed on that, uh, um, on that time frame, it would be, uh, it'd be amazing as well, but you can't, uh, you can't sort of, you know, sort of, uh, um, have everything and, uh, um, it seems like, uh, you know, if I were kind of, uh, you know, placing a bet, uh, you know, focusing on uh, um, the vaccines would be the way uh, um, the way I would want uh, um, development uh, to uh, to focus. So, uh, um, uh, you know, just as everyone should kind of, uh, you know, should sort of widely praise uh, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the vaccine uh, um, pace, I think, for kind of some uh, more reasonable expectations about uh, um, developing therapeutics might be. Uh, like in order too, but uh, you know, obviously, it would be best best to have them both. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was reading, um, and I think I read one very early on the pandemic, like an art, but there was another good article this week in a publication about kind of how um, how difficult antiviral development is. I mean, sort of focusing on COVID, but also kind of explaining why general antivirals is a hard space that so you do sort of. Um, while people certainly highlighted the difficulty in vaccine development and how lucky we are at the speed of this, um, yeah, maybe it's a little bit unfair to put these um, 
certain expectations on COVID therapeutics. <laughs> Although I guess the one thing that um, even though these vaccines do work very well with variants emerging and, um, you know, they're not, uh, they don't seem to be 100%, there's some breakthrough cases. So there probably will always be a long-term need for therapeutics as well if we can find them. But um, I guess it will be interesting to see if there's like a big enough need that after this kind of this this emergency period, hopefully, um, ends, you know, would there be sort of long-term incentive for companies to keep focusing on therapeutics in this space as well? Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, exactly right, uh, uh, Sarah. There's, you know, it, it felt at one point like, oh, maybe we, you know, the uh, coronavirus maybe sort of kind of, uh, you know, erased and obviously you have to watch the next pandemic, but sort of kind of now it seems like maybe it's going to be more of a, um, a chronic thing with sort of kind of the various variants uh, um, emerging uh, from time to time. And just like the flu is sort of kind of uh, primarily combated with, uh, you know, um, you know, hand washing and uh, vaccines, there are flu therapeutics as well. And so uh, developing the armamentarium of coronavirus uh, um, uh, therapeutics would be an important step for, uh, for public health too. Yeah, I remember when they when the back when the pandemic first started, they there were all these warnings that like, you know, you you know, we need to follow through with, you know, the vaccine trials because, you know, this could disappear quickly. And, you know, and they kept bringing up the Ebola outbreak and how they weren't able to finish a lot of the trials because the you know, the cases all went away and now Ebola is popping up again. And we're probably wishing we had Ebola treatments that were completed. So, yeah, I, you know, this is this is another one of those where they they're going to have to keep on it and you know hopefully people don't forget the lessons they're you know learned as you know once we get uh, you know past the worst of this so finally today we're going to look at some of the reasons that the FDA does not accept new applications for review sarah you looked at an interesting study of refuse to file actions yeah there um FDA um employees did published a study in JAMA Internal Medicine on Monday looking at a decade worth of refused to file letters um, where FDA, you know, said these uh, certain drug applications or supplements weren't ready for their complete review. Um, it's an unusual look at these sorts of actions because as the study flags, um, FDA um, really can't um, you know, generally release these letters and companies tend to not um, make too much about them public. Only 15% of the refused to file letters were sort of noticed by companies. Um, and then the FDA found that most of the companies weren't, were either like not disclosing why they got the letters or um, not quite accurately in FDA's view, kind of explaining why they were re received. So this is a really sort of just unusual amount of data to kind of mine through to see why FDA does issue them. Um, I mean, the one probably positive thing, I guess, for sponsors is that it is fairly rare to get these letters. Um, they're only about 4% of the um, NDA and supplements um, FDA received over the 10-year period from got one of these letters, so that's fairly small. Um, 
but you can see from FDA's review that they're they're getting them for fairly significant reasons, not for, you know, minor things they have to go back and tweak. And um, it seems like receiving one of these on average could lead to, you know, a year and a half or so of an you know extended review time. So um, the big things that come up, the biggest thing that comes up is CMC issues in about one fifth of the letters and then followed um, by clinical efficacy and safety um, each about 15% of the time. And I think it's also important to point out a lot of companies aren't getting these letters just for one reason. Um, there were 103 letters um, looked at and analyzed for this study. And I think it was over 640 refuse to file reasons that they categorize. So obviously most people are, um, have a few dings or things they need to work through. Um, and you know, you, you can look at the article and the data because the FDA kind of does these broader categor categorization of, you know, CMC or clinical efficacy safety, and then they try and even whittle it down. And FDA does sort of make a little bit of a pitch in the paper that, you know, it would be helpful for more of this data to be transparent because potentially um, companies could learn from the, you know, mistakes of other companies and maybe um, overall that would be positive for speedier drug development. Um, obviously, this is um, a, a transparency issue that's been talked about for about 10 years or so, at least at FDA, and there hasn't been a lot of progress here. So I'm not sure that companies feel the same way <laughs> about the value of sort of revealing these letters, but we'll see if it comes up again more now that, you know, again, this, this study has come out. Yeah, it's surprising they don't want to emphasize their uh, their failures. I don't know what they're, uh, what they're holding <laughs> back, uh, you know, progress for uh, their competitors in terms of understanding what, uh, what FDA is doing. It's a, uh, I was a structure as you were talking about, uh, um, you know, how there's such a variety of letters. The, uh, you know, the, the, the famous anachronic quote that, uh, you know, sort of kind of every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So maybe there isn't all that much to uh, to learn. It's sort of kind of, if there's no sort of kind of one overarching uh, um, problem that's sort of kind of, the, you can't just kind of, kind of fix uh, one thing that sort of that, uh, um, that was sort of kind of, you know, help the next one avoid, uh, um, avoid the letter. Um, so it's, uh, um, it, uh, it, you know, we'd certainly sort of love to see them. And I think, uh, um, it's one of these sort of collective active problems that sort of people had a better sense of exactly for kind of what uh, what went wrong with every other application. You know, it, it sort of would be good overall, but then sort of kind of, uh, you know, sort of kind of revealing your application problems sort of kind of puts you at a disadvantage. So there would have to be some sort of kind of probably sort of a broader, uh, um, you know, broader requirement that you're kind of hoping that, uh, you know, companies are kind of come around to the idea that they can sort of kind of, uh, you know, advance public understanding of, uh, um, of drug development by, uh, um, by offering uh, offering their own uh, um, choose to file letters out there. Yeah, I, I'm always interested in just looking through the reasons that how many times sponsors ignored advice from the agency, and maybe that's because yeah. And and Sarah and Matt, you have sat through these meetings and listened to the speeches from the FDA people. They constantly say, "Come in and talk to us. We'll help you with X pro insert problem here." you know, have a meeting, have a call, whatever, they're willing, they've been more willing to give advice, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, in, in recent years, but I mean, they've always been able, been, you know, been, 
been been uh, able to offer scientific advice to sponsors. So you go through all that process, and then for one reason or another, you don't follow it. And then you're like, well, why did my application get refused? Well, yeah, <laughs> to see, yeah, I, I know, I know, it's not that simple, and I'm, I'm boiling it down to black and white. And you know, I'm sure there's a whole lot of gray. And it's probably all gray, but. The, you know, you go through all this trouble, trouble to get advice and give advice and do, and then, you know, you don't follow it. I mean, you, you know, I, I, get, I just, I find that, you know, I find that interesting to see in the statistics. Yeah. yeah when, go ahead, sir. Oh, I was going to say, um, when uh, we, I was about to write this story, you know, Matt was saying uh, how, well, yeah, this study does show there was a lot of, of uh, applications that sort of didn't take FDA's advice, but we never kind of, and we certainly see this in advisory committees and stuff like that, I guess the thing that we never quite, we don't have the data on is how many companies sort of decide not to listen to FDA and do go on to be fine. So we, it does seem sort of initially like very like obvious to us that like, why didn't you guys listen to FDA? You don't have to be that smart to, you know, think you should probably listen to the person that's going to have like sort of the ultimate um, final say on the marketability of your product. But maybe we are miss. I don't know. You do sort of wonder, are we missing something where a um, good number of companies often are able to kind of do go their own way and end up being fine? Yeah, it's a little hard to say for kind of who... Um, who ignored FDA's advice and uh, um, and why, as you were uh, uh, saying, Sarah, um, you know, uh, um, that some, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the FDA did break down for kind of uh, large companies versus small, uh, uh, smaller companies in terms of who got the letters. And there didn't seem to be actually sort of, kind of surprisingly to me, not that much of a, uh, um, a difference in terms of sort of kind of the, you know, the proportion uh, um, of those things uh, um, relative to their size. Um, and it could, you know, it could be that smaller companies just honestly don't understand what FDA is uh, um, uh, asking them to do, just because they're less experienced with this stuff and sort kind of uh, you're less familiar with sort kind of uh, um, you know the requirements and sort kind of what what FDA's expectations are. So that could be a uh, you know it could be sort kind of you know the eye of the uh, um, the uh, the refuser, I guess, is sort kind of well, you should have listened to me, but the uh, the applicant you know sort of didn't quite understand what the uh, um, what the uh, the agency was saying, perhaps, and uh, um, you know, it could just sort of be uh, um, a uh, um, a factor of uh, um, just hoping for the best and uh, um, uh, going for it anyway. And uh, you know, um, so it's uh, um, it's interesting to uh, to see sort of kind of the uh, um, the various uh, um, the various reasons that uh, um, that people have uh, um, uh, gotten letters. But almost as interesting as looking at sort of kind of what the uh, what ones were disclosed, and uh, um, you know, chemistry manufacturing uh, um, uh, issues are uh, uh, very high in terms of uh, um, the the reason for uh, um, the receipt, but they're also pretty high in terms of the uh, the number that that have been publicly disclosed. So I think people are sort of kind of perhaps uh, less embarrassed about uh, manufacturing <laughs> problems than sort of kind of than uh, um, other aspects of uh, um, application deficiencies. And I don't know if that means that. Uh, um, they don't take that seriously, or that sort of kind of that, that they feel that that's sort of kind of more uh, correctable in some way. Although we, we obviously sort of kind of uh, know that that is not no easy uh, um, no easy thing. So that's a just sort of maybe uh, something to watch there in terms of sort of kind of what uh, what that says about uh, you know industry's feeling about uh, manufacturing issues. Yeah, I would I would think that if you you know you'd be afraid to disclose you know an efficacy or a safety problem because that can't be fixed. 
like under any really at all short of a new trial or something, you know, going back to the drawing board maybe. And, you know, a CMC issue can be, you know, you don't lose the product necessarily. You're, you know, it's a, it's manufacturing, you know, because it's manufacturing, you can, it's a little easier to, to deal with than say, you know, efficacy, you know, we have efficacy problems. And so we're refusing the, refusing the application. Maybe, that, I don't know, maybe that's just me. <clears throat> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.